Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, well, how about we pray and then uh, dive in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God Almighty, we give you thanks and praise for, gosh, these glorious, beautiful days you've been giving us these past couple days, this past couple weeks, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for again creating the opportunity for us to come together, both as individuals seeking to learn more about this faith, and also as cradle Catholics who want to go deeper, who want to know more. Lord, open our hearts tonight to have a clearer vision of who your son Jesus is. That we would have um, hearts that are willing to surrender to him. And we make this prayer, Lord, in your name. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, well, again, thank you guys for making the adjustment coming on a Monday and being in the church. If you hear loud noises or crazy music coming from the floor below us, it's not hell. Um, it, is, uh, it is the middle school youth group, which for some people would be hell. Um, but it's our 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th graders uh, all downstairs for what we call the Vines. So they meet on Monday nights. Um, but yeah, so they're down there. So I don't know what sort of shenanigans they're going to be doing, but I'm sure we'll hear them. All right? Um, next week, again, we'll be back to Wednesday, just so you know, and kind of going forward, unless told otherwise. It's going to be Wednesdays. Okay, tonight what we're talking about is the person of Jesus, um, which makes sense because Jesus is at the center of Christianity. There is no Christianity without Jesus. And what I want us to do tonight is I, I, want, us to, I want us to think deeply about this issue. I want us to think deeply about the person of Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the center of the gospel, like the heart of the Christian claim is what God has done for the world in the person of Jesus, and the center of the Christian claim about Jesus is that he is God-made man. That's the claim, right? That's what I want us to think about, because most Christians, most Catholics, don't really spend time thinking about these things. That's what I want us to do. The center of the Christian claim is Jesus is God. So this is where I want to start. Right here, right? What's in a name, right? So as much as anywhere else, this is as good a place as any to start. Because in the Bible, names are very significant. Names are highly, highly significant. Um, Names of people, names of places. Places get specific names because of what happened there. Think of the Old Testament, if you're familiar with this, when the Israelites are wandering, they're leaving Egypt, and they come to this place, and they're grumbling against God and against Moses because we don't have enough food, we don't have enough drink. And so they name the place Meribah and Massah, which in Hebrew means to grumble and complain. Right? This is the place where they grumbled and complained against God. Or think about uh, the figure of Abraham. Right? Abraham, whose name was originally Abram, which means father of many, which is ironic and tragic for him because at the time when his name was Abram, he didn't have any kids. No kids, right? It's hard to be named father of many and you don't have kids. Um, so God makes the promise to him, you're going you're gonna to be the father of many. Look up, see the stars, count them, so will your descendants be. 
right? Look at the sand in the, in the, uh, look at the sand in the desert. So will your descendants be more numerous. So he gets a new name, Abraham, which means father not of many, but father of multitudes, right? And it's years later that he actually does conceive the son. His wife conceives the son, Isaac. We'll talk about that later. But names, places are very, very, very significant in a way that our culture today doesn't really, I think, by and large, understand or appreciate anymore, right? People get named things because it sounds good, right? It has really nothing to do with the name itself or like the meaning of the name. Sure, I guess maybe in some circles that's still true, but um, yeah, there's some names you hear, you're like, where did your, who, your mother should be slapped. I don't know, like what is that name, right? Like, I don't understand. There's like apostrophes and all sorts of like number symbols. Like Eon, Eon not Eon, um, oh my gosh. Elon, there you go, Elon Musk. What did he name his son? There's like a number in his name or something? Who knows? Who knows? That poor kid. Kindergarten is hard enough, right? Like, there's a pound sign in my name. Okay. So what does the name of Jesus mean? This is what we want to look at. What does the name of Jesus mean? Yeshua is his name. That's what he would have heard when his mom was calling his name for dinner. Yeshua, right? It would have been Yeshua, which in Hebrew means God saves. That's what his name means. That was the name given to him by the angel Gabriel at the Annunciation even before he was conceived. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is who he is. The question for tonight, though, is, is it really? Is, it, is that really who he is? Right? God saves. Is this really God saving people? Right? This person, is that really who he is? We say that it is. That Jesus is God in the flesh and he has saved his people. We say that and, you know, if you're a cradle Catholic, if you've been a Christian your whole life, ostensibly this is a thing you have believed, probably as long as you've had beliefs, that Jesus is God and he saves. But what reasons do we have for believing that is the question. Are there any reasons? Or is it just, just believe it, just have faith? Spoiler alert, there's great reasons to believe this. There's great, great reasons to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, right? You with me so far? You good? Anybody need to stand up and use the bathroom yet? Okay, all right. Thank goodness. Okay. Because it's extremely common to hear today in our day and age, especially, I've noticed this, especially around Christmas and Easter, the History Channel turns into like the fiction weird channel. The History Channel is kind of a weird channel these days. They got like ancient aliens and all sorts of things. They're like, is that really history? Anyway, like there was a, t- there was a special I saw one time that was like, um, if Hitler had won. I'm like, that's not history. He didn't win. Like, why is this on the History Channel? I don't understand. So a uh, History Channel, usually around Christmas, usually around Easter, it starts popping out these TV specials about this is the real Jesus, right? It's talking about the real Jesus. And the real Jesus didn't think he was God. The real Jesus was this good first century Deepak Chopra kind of guy walking around in sandals, Birkenstocks, and, uh, you know, he was, an, he was the original hippie telling people to be nice and get along, all those sorts of things. But he was a, essentially a decent, very decent, upright, moral teacher, a wise man, some model to follow, right? That a lot of people think, oh yeah, Jesus was a first century nice guy. A lot of people have that thought. A lot of college professors have that thought. 
a lot of people who go off to college are indoctrinated and taught, no, that's not really who Jesus is. Jesus was just basically a first century nice guy, a first century moral teacher. Certainly wasn't God. That's ridiculous. He was not God, right? Like, the only way to heaven, that seems a bit absurd, right? There are countless people today, a lot of them are smart people, you know, smart people, air quotes. A lot of people say that they're willing to grant Jesus some sort of important status as a moral teacher, as a religious figure, but not God. That's, that's, that's a little bit too far. He's just a nice guy. But as one uh, Christian author some years ago said, if he was just a nice guy, like, governments don't kill nice guys, right? As this person said, what kind of government would crucify Captain Kangaroo or Mr. Rogers, right? Like, you, you, you just don't crucify nice guys for being nice guys. That's just not what you do, right? He was not just simply a nice guy. That's not why he was put to death. Clearly, his contemporaries, the people who followed him and the people who put him to death, they thought very differently about him than most people today think about. Most people. A lot of people today think about Jesus, right? He was not put to death for being a nice guy. They didn't kill him for being a good guy or a moral teacher or a prophet. They killed him because he claimed to be God. That's why they killed him. Because for the Romans, like, Kaiser Kyrios was the watchword. Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Right? Upon Caesar Augustus' death, there was this theological movement that saw him being turned into a god. The apotheosis of Caesar. He was elevated to the Empyrean heaven, and now the son of Caesar is God, right? Caesar's God. Not this crucified guy, right? Caesar's Lord. Caesar is God. Kaiser Curios. Right? So for the Romans, this was politically very problematic to have this guy walking around saying that he's God. And for the Jews, this was theologically blasphemous, right? Because for the Jews, right? Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone. Him alone shall you serve. Like that was the, the central point of uh, Jewish faith, that he is the, he is Spirit, he is singular. He does not have a son who certainly doesn't have flesh, right? A man who walks and talks and at one point crawled and had to learn how to eat. A man who could sweat and bleed. That can't be God, right? So for the Romans, it was politically problematic. For the Jews, it was theologically problematic. And that's why they put him to death. So here's the question. How has it happened these 2,000 years later, how has it happened that we've come to a place where so many people, you turn on the television around Christmas and Easter, so many people have come to think of Jesus as a merely inspiring guy. How has it happened that we live in a world where there's so many people who regard Jesus as a first century nice guy who is ground beneath the wheel of Roman imperialism? How has that happened? Here's how it happened. Because people aren't thinking deeply about this stuff. People aren't thinking. This is a, a bracketed aside right here, a little tangent we're going to go on for a second here. This faith of ours is so exquisite, it's so deep, it's so profound, it's so beautiful. 
It's the stuff that the brightest people who've ever lived have spent their whole lives pondering and thinking about. I believe it was St. John Chrysostom who said that the Gospels are shallow enough for a mouse to walk through and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Most people, most good Christians, good Catholics, most stay very much in the shallows. And if we are in the shallows, the culture doesn't even have water to swim in or to walk through. Right? We've gotten to this place where people just regard Jesus as a first century nice guy because you're not really thinking. You're not really thinking about this. That's what we're doing tonight. We're thinking deep. We're going deep. Sound good? You with me? Good. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to start with some of the most important words from Jesus in the gospel, specifically this quote from Matthew 16. That's not a quote, that's a picture. I should put that in my notes. Matthew 16 (laughs) records uh, a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. They're walking through this region called Caesarea Philippi. What's interesting about Caesarea Philippi, if you look here, there is this massive, massive rock. And on top of this massive rock was a temple to the god Pan, who was the Greek and Roman god of sheep and shepherds. So this region, you have this rock. On top of it was a temple dedicated to the god of shepherding. And you have this huge cave here. In this cave... It was said to be the gates of hell. Now, how interesting is that when you consider Jesus' question and the conversation he has there? He asks his disciples as they're walking along, who do people say that I am? It's the question he asks. Who do people say that I am? Do I have that up here? Yeah, there we go. Who do people say that I am? Stop and try and really hear this question for the first time here. Like, I want you to imagine, I was doing this earlier, I was eating, I, I, I got Chipotle for dinner, and I only had half of it, because if I had a whole of it, I would be asleep right now. So I had half my Chipotle, I was thinking about this question, and thinking about imagining Father Joe and I sitting across from each other at dinner. We usually have dinner Wednesday nights. And I'm just imagining Father Joe putting his fork down and leaning back, just asking me, who do people say that I am? it's a crazy question like it's the question of an egomaniac right like who do you who do you think you are right like that's crazy what do you mean who do people say that i am like the only thing that maybe would make sense if he was saying like what do people think about me right or um what's the reputation what's the scuttlebutt give me some give me some info what are people saying but who do people say that i am this is the question he asks This is the question he asks. And the response is very interesting. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets, Jeremiah, right? Which, if you know who those people are, those are the who's who of Israel history, right? Those are the incredible people, right? You don't get better than those people. And they're also all dead, okay? That's a thing they all have in common. It's very interesting that, like, some people are saying, I think that guy is one of those dead guys, right? Like... He must have been very fascinating, right? Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Okay, so there's this circulating opinions about him. But then, after listening to them, he asks another question. He goes right at them. He says, but you, 
Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Simon Peter, right? Simon, who's a fisherman. Simon is given this grace by the Holy Spirit, this grace by God. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And he says, so I say unto you, remember, where are they? This is very interesting. They're in front of a gigantic rock. Jesus says to Simon, I say to you, you are Peter, kepha in the Hebrew, meaning rock. You are Peter. And upon this rock, pointing to him, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who is Peter? He becomes the first shepherd, the first pope of the church. That all happens, by the way, in this area where there's a temple to the God of sheep and shepherds in front of this gigundo rock in front of the gates of hell. I think that's fascinating. That was a freebie. I wasn't planning on telling you that tonight. (laughs) But that was the response. What about you? Who do you say that I am? That was Peter's response. And I would say... Just as he did with them, Jesus is asking us that question. I would go so far as to say that that, I believe, is the single most important question that any of us could ever answer in our lifetime. Answering the question, who do you say that I am? Because the reality is, we will either answer, there's no not answering the question. You can't avoid the question, it's unavoidable. You will answer it one way or another. If he is Lord, then he gets everything. If he is not, then you get to be Lord. There's a lot of people who answer the question by living the, living the life that they want. It's very clear that Jesus is not Lord, right? This is the most important question. Everything changes with the answer to this question. Because if he is the divine rescuer, like we talked about last time, if he is the one who has rescued me, from the clutches of sin and death and hell and Satan, if he's the one who has rescued me from the human trafficker known as Satan, then he's the one who deserves everything. He gets all of my life. He's so good. He's trustworthy. We have to answer this question. But here's here's another question. What is the the truth about Jesus? What is the truth about Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? Again, we're thinking hard tonight. First concerning his existence? Because there are people who think, well, he didn't even exist. He was, a, he was a myth. Those people, there's a technical academic term for them. It's called morons. Yeah, that's the technical term for those people. I mean that in all due respect, Lord, I do. <laughs> but seriously, there is overwhelming evidence that there's no serious historian worth his weight in anything who denies the existence of this first century personage named Jesus of Nazareth. There's just, we have more documented evidence of his existence than we do of Caesar Augustus' existence. He existed, right? I'm just going to point you to, uh, we have extra biblical sources that attest to his existence. We got Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, wrote about Jesus of Nazareth. Tacitus, also Roman historian. Pliny, Roman official. All these people over and over and over again, are mentioning the person of Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, this wonder worker, miracle worker. It's just so well documented and so well attested, you can't really deny it. Uh, We don't have time to go into it tonight, but 
Uh, I just want to direct your attention to these two books. Maybe you want to grab out, pull out your phone, either write down the titles or take a picture of this slide. These two books, I do a ton of reading. It's, it's my job to read and learn. But these two books are two of the best books I've read in recent years that have to do with like, why we should believe the Gospels. Right? So this first one, Cold Case, Cold Case Christianity, was written by J. Warner Wallace, who was, uh, he was an atheist. He, ra- he was raised as an atheist. He was, a, he was and is a, a cold case criminal investigator based in uh, Los Angeles County, right? So he saw some stuff. And one day he had the thought of applying the principles that he uses for cold case investigation, using the principles of cold case investigation to the claims of theism in general and Christianity in particular. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So his book uh, is so good. He's got another one called God's Crime Scene. Um, so good. It's just, it's just such an interesting, like, different angle of apologetics than anything else you'll read about the topic. And also this book, The Case for Jesus, by Dr. Brant Petrie, who's an amazing, brilliant scripture scholar. Uh, I think he's in Louisiana. Anyway, I don't have time to go into this topic too, too much tonight because there's too much I want to talk about, but these two books, I can't recommend them enough. For tonight, what I want to do is I want to examine more about Jesus' own words from the gospel. So what I'm doing is I'm presuming that we're all on the same page in the sense that, um, that we believe that the gospels are historically reliable documents, right? If, if you don't believe that, turn to these books. So just like on good faith, assume with me that the, do- the gospels are historically reliable documents. And if that's the case, then we're going to look at Jesus's words and try and understand who, like, what kind of guy says these things. So we're going to start here. Does that make sense, what we're doing? Anybody need to use, use restroom? Get up, stretch? Okay, we're good? All right. All right. Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, he being Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak thus? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question thus in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your pallet, and walk? Before we go further, what is the answer to that question? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or, hey, paralyzed guy, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven, right? Because no one knows if that happens or not, right? I walk up to a cow and just say, cow, your sins are forgiven. Then I walk up to the cow and say, cow, be turned into a moose, right? Like, which is going to be more evidence, right? Like, clearly it's, this, it's, the, it's the former, right? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
He continues, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, so sometimes I think that the gospel writers, Mark in particular, really could have used some adjectives, right? Like, some, some other words here, right? Like, they were amazed? Like, are you kidding me? Like, you would be losing your mind, absolutely losing your mind, right? Okay, this is what happens. Rise, take up your mat, and go. And they're all amazed, glorify God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Okay, so what do we have going on here? You got these, you've got the scholars of the law who hear Jesus say to this guy, lowered through the roof. Imagine you're the guy lowered through the roof, by the way, right? You're paralyzed, right? Let's imagine you're just paralyzed from the waist down. And you're like holding on to ropes. Legs are just like, eh, right? Coming down through the roof, right? And you just like land, hopefully softly on the floor. You're like, oh, Jesus. I'm so, I'm so sorry. It was their idea, right? And Jesus looks at you, a paralyzed guy, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And you go, oh, no, I... That's actually not why I'm here. Um, <laughs> like, these are fine. These not so fine, right? Like, can you do something about the paralysis, right? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, you're one of the scribes, the scholars of the law, and you hear him, you're like, oh, who does this guy think he is, right? They say only God can forgive sins because only God can forgive sins. And here's this guy assuming to himself the power to forgive another person of their sins, right? Imagine you, imagine someone else doing this, right? How weird and crazy I would seem if I forgave you for something you did to somebody else, right? Like, okay, imagine like, all right, let's just, no, that, that's, that maybe it's not clear. Like, you come to me, you tell me I uh, really screwed up. I was really harsh with my wife. I, I said things I shouldn't have said. I lost my temper. And I say to you, I forgive you. Like, you would look at me like I got two heads, right? Like, we don't forgive each other for the sins that you, like the other person committed with somebody else. But that's exactly what he does. Here's why I'm putting this out. We hear these scriptures and it's just kind of like one ear out the other. We don't hear or realize how bizarre this is. But he's, a, he's claiming to himself the authority to forgive people of their sins, which only God can do, right? Which only God can do. Okay, next one. If you're keeping score, we're going to keep moving through these. Matthew, Matthew 10. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Imagine if I said, imagine if I said this to you, like on Sunday, right? Get up at the pulpit. Deacon has just proclaimed the gospel. I get up there and I say, hey, I know some of you are getting old and you're probably gonna, you know, soon, right? <laughs> um, just when you get up there, just say, say you know me. Just tell them you know me, and you'll be good. You'd be like, what kind of crazy man is this, right? Like, 
you would, you would throw stones at me. You would throw, gather us in at me, right? Like you would throw books and rocks and pitchforks at me. You'd be like, this guy's nuts. You'd be running to the bishop. Okay, but that's what he says. If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. Just tell them you know me. I'm with Jesus, right? Party of Jesus. I'm with that group. All right. Okay, keep going. John 14. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? I always, Chris, this is, I always picture you in this conversation. Picture Chris being in my office. I'm like, Father, I just like, really struggling in my prayer life. I just, I want to be able to like see, see God. I want, I want that connection. And I say to you, Chris, man, brother, calm down. You see me? You see God? Like, what else do you want, baby? You know, like, okay, Jesus, right? Like, this is where it just like, it gets kind of crazy. Imagine if this was a conversation you had with another human being, Right? I picture Father Joe saying this, and that's a really great image. Okay. People heard Jesus' claims. They heard the things that he said, and they thought one of two things. Either kill him, or I'm following you. He was the most polarizing person that ever existed. He was like cilantro, if you will. You either love cilantro, or you think it's the worst thing in the world. Who thinks cilantro smells and tastes like soap in here? Anybody? Oh, we got one right there. It's very polarizing, see? It's the Christ of the herbs, really. Um, splits a room. <laughs> but that's what, that was the response. That was the response. No one, no one encountered Jesus who was kind of like, meh. It was hot or cold. I'm with you or I'm against you. I'm following you or I'm going to kill you, right? That was the response to Jesus. That was the response. Which, by the way, is also the response of the Catholic Church in the world, right? That's one of the greatest pieces of evidence that the church is Christ's mystical body in the world today. That the church is either loathed or so beloved. For what she teaches, what she preaches, she's either loathed, hated, smeared, attacked, or praised, defended, upheld, all of the above, right? The, the polar options of Christ also apply to the church. I think that's fascinating. We'll talk more about that when we talk about the church in a few weeks. Okay. C.S. Lewis, you're lucky I haven't quoted him more because I went on a pilgrimage this summer to Oxford and I got to see where he lived and worked and wrote and had his conversions and I wept like a baby at his tomb. Oh my gosh. We share a birthday, by the way. Coincidence? I think not. Anyway, C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant Christian apologists, one of the most brilliant Christian writers of the 20th century. He was, uh, he was a scholar both in Oxford and in Cambridge. Uh, he was an Anglican. He converted in his 30s. He, became, uh, he came back to communion in his 30s and was uh, just brilliant. He wrote, one of the, I mean, some of the things he wrote, 
we're going to hear a lot more C.S. Lewis as the years goes on. But one of the most brilliant pieces of, of apologetic work of his is a book called Mere Christianity, which was a collection of uh, radio audiences that he gave over the BBC during World War II to kind of boost morale of people. Um, it, it's, it's accessible, but it's also like you have to chew on it for a while, right? It's not like tapioca. It's, it's uh, I don't know, like a good skirt steak, if you will. All right? It's delicious. It's so good. But he wrote in Mere Christianity, he wrote this. He wrote, I'm trying to prevent people, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the, the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. This famous passage in Mere Christianity, a chapter called The Shocking Alternative, has been referred to as the Lord, I got the quote there, the Lord Lunatic Liar Trilemma. Lord Lunatic Liar Trilemma. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be God, and so then, according to Lewis, those who hold to this, right, and those who hold to this, like he either, like it, these are the options. Either he thought he was and actually wasn't, in which case he was a crazy person, or he knew he wasn't and said he was, in which case he's a liar, or he was exactly who he said he was, in which case he's the Lord. Like, those are the options. Period. Those are the options. If he's not Lord, then he's a crazy person or something awful. Those are the options. So here's the question. What reasons do we have to believe this, that Jesus is Lord? Because if he isn't, man, whew, I really made a big mistake in career choices. Because <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm a little bit sweaty, and this is not super comfortable right now, right? Like, if he's not Lord, man, what are we doing here? What are the reasons we have to believe this? That he's the one who reveals to us the truth about who God is. Let me state this, too, that like, I said this at the outset, like, this faith of ours, it's not merely a matter of just, you just gotta believe it. Like, faith isn't blind. Faith and reason, they co in here, they come together. Our faith makes sense. Yes, yes, there's things in our faith that go beyond reason, but it's built upon reason. It's reasonable, is the idea. It's reasonable. 
it's never a blind leap. It's never asking you just to assent to something, well, because some dictate from on high came down and just asserted it. That's not what we believe. Like, our faith is, it's not founded on sentimentality. It's based on evidence. It's based on historical claims. Our faith is nailed to a timeline, to history, right? Like, our creed does not begin, like, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a God, and he had a son named Jesus, right? It doesn't start with those things. Like, our faith, our creed is nailed to a timeline. We say things like, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which, a few years ago, I had a a fourth grader ask me the question in class one time, Father Pat, what's a Pontius Pilate? Like, what? Like, Jesus was crucified underneath a Pontius Pilate. What's a Pontius Pilate? Like, oh, that's adorable. You moron. No, I'm just kidding. But that's what we say. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, meaning under the reign while this man was reigning, Pontius Pilate, right? Or think about the gospel at Christmas time. We say, like, when Caesar Augustus was emperor and Quirinius was governor of Syria, And some other dude was something of Abilene or something. I forget the guy's name. But like like the gospel writers are like naming people and times and places when these events took place. And what's really, really fascinating, and I I should have a slide of this one too, Um, Eric Metaxas, I don't know, some people like Eric Metaxas, some people hate the guy, I think he's quite brilliant. But he wrote a book not too long ago called Is Atheism Dead? And in that book, he's got a whole section on biblical archaeology. And how in the last 50 to 100 years, biblical archaeology has, has like revolutionized the claims of the Bible. Like we have found so many things. For example, this thing. You're like, wow, that's a cool rock. Okay, what is this? Archaeologists call this the pilot stone. This stone here, this, has, this engraving has the name of the governor who reigned at the time of Jesus' execution, Pontius Pilatus. You can kind of... Here's the P-I-L... Or P-I-L-A-T-U-S. Pontius Pilatus, yeah. Pontius Pilatus, right there. Um, so it's like, <laughs> like, there he is. Jesus was crucified underneath this stone, people, right here. All right, so let's get more precise. And ask this. What is the crucial question in Christianity or any religious claim, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Buddhism? What's the crucial question that we need to consider? I feel like I heard someone say it. What's the crucial question? Is it true? Ten points. You're in the lead so far tonight, just so you know. Is it true? This is the question. This is the central question. Is it true? Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it bears repeating because it's so embarrassing in my life, and I just, you know, you probably should know it. Okay. The only reason to believe something is if it's true. Like Santa Claus. Believing in Santa Claus. Believing in Santa Claus is a wonderful thing when you're a child. Right? It makes you well-behaved, it's magical, makes you feel great, like, oh, all the magic and wonder of Christmas, right? All of that. I would be willing to bet a billion dollars 
that there's not a person in the church right now who still believes in Santa Claus? Just going out on a limb here. And why don't we believe in Santa Claus anymore? Because it's not true, right? Very good. This was not a trick question. You mean to tell me that this thing that makes you feel good and makes you behave well, that you don't believe in that anymore? Even though it makes you feel great and it makes you behave well? No, I don't believe in that anymore because it's not true. I found out that Santa Claus was not true in a very horrifying way. I will tell you that story now. My dad had a new camcorder. We had this long, um, I guess the technology was new or whatever, that you could record up to like 15 hours of tape on this thing. And uh, I thought, man, this is, this, is, this is a brilliant idea. I can't believe no one's ever thought of this. I'm going to sneak the camcorder into a present and hide it beneath the Christmas tree Christmas Eve. So that's exactly what I did. I took a shoebox, and I wrapped the shoebox in uh, wrapping paper, and I cut a little slit at the end of the shoebox, put the camcorder in the shoebox, wrapped it up, hit record, angled it just right facing the fireplace, and placed it with some of the other like family gifts that were already beneath the tree. Left it there. Go to bed. And I'm thinking, Oh, this is going to be unbelievable. All these other, I can't believe no one ever thought of this before. I'm going to get video evidence of Santa Claus coming into my house. Next morning, I wake up, come bolting down the steps. My parents are down there. Cookies, crumbs are everywhere. Carrots are eaten. Milk is gone. I'm like, he was here, right? So I grab the box, run upstairs. You have to picture this. There I am, 14 years old. And um, <laughs> so... I wasn't 14. 16. Okay, so there I am. I was probably like six. Okay, so six, seven years old. I'm sitting there on my bed, feet dangling off the bed. I got the camera, and I'm like, fast forwarding, fast forwarding, or rewinding, rewinding, rewinding. And I'm like waiting, 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 waiting for Santa to appear in the screen. And all of a sudden, like, I just see in one moment, like, my dad's body comes into the frame. And he's got, like, all these gifts, and he's, like, putting them underneath the tree. I'm like, what is dad doing here? puts the gifts underneath the tree. See my mom come in the frame. She bites the carrot, right? That was not a reindeer. She bit the carrot. My dad's there eating the cookies, slamming the milk, and I am devastated, okay? Absolutely devastated. Actually, I was thinking I was more like nine years old because my brother was three. Okay, so I come downstairs. I'm holding the camera, tears streaming down my face. Show the, like, video evidence to my parents. And my dad pulls me into the other room and gets down in front of me. He says, you don't tell your brother a word about this. <laughs> That's why I'm still in therapy. And, um, <laughs> but that's like, we don't believe in it anymore. And the reason we don't believe it anymore, even though it's wonderful, even though it makes us feel good, it's because it's not true. Why should we believe in God? Why should we believe in Jesus? Why should we believe in Christianity? Only if it's true. And here's the thing, right? And concerning Christianity, what is the key issue to examine? What's the thing we have to investigate concerning Christianity, concerning Jesus? Bueller? Someone take a stab at it. What's that? 
the history, but specifically which event in history did he rise? Ten points to Sean. You are now tied. Did he rise? This is the question. This is the question. Did he rise? If this is true, then everything else that Jesus said about himself and about God is vindicated. All that stuff about forgiving sins, all that stuff about I'm the way, the truth, the life, all of it is vindicated and corroborated if he rose. If he rose. If it's false, go home. I need someone to help me get a resume together. This is an utter waste of time. So, I have in my notes, Deacon, I told them before, by the way, welcome, thanks for being here. I told them at the beginning that you texted me to make sure I gave everyone a break, and I put in my notes, potential break, right here. So, let's take a five-minute stretch break, bathroom break, go get water or do other things. Um, come back, five minutes. Leave you on the cliffhanger of did he rise from the dead? <laughs> We ready to find out the answer to the question of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? We want to know. Okay. All right. Because here's the thing. Some people claim that Jesus is divinity. This whole idea that Jesus is divine son of God. Some people claim that Jesus' divinity was an invention of the early church that after some years, Jesus the preacher, Jesus the teacher was transformed into Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the son of God, Jesus this divine person, right? Again, there is a technical claim for people who hold these views. Um, I'm not even going to say it because I'm in church. So that's, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to look at. It's, it's, uh, that's the question. Is that right? No, it's not right. If you have your Bibles, if you want to flip to some of these, that might be fun, but uh, you don't have to. I, got the, I, I think I have the quotes up here. Yeah. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. St. Paul is writing to this little community in Corinth, this Christian community, that, by the way, would have been, I don't know, if you take, like, our parish, um, no, I meant to say, if you take, like, a Sunday Mass, like a 1030 Sunday Mass at our parish, that's probably what the Christian community in Corinth was like uh, in terms of size or scope. So he's writing to this community, St. Paul, who, before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. Paul, who was this, Saul, who was this convinced Pharisee, that Christianity was an aberration from Judaism, and it had to be destroyed, had to be put down, right? He had letters in hand writing to Damascus to bring back in chains any Christians that he found. Paul, who was the first, or Saul, rather, who was the first to, um, to create the first Christian martyr, right? St. Stephen. I always think about when Stephen and Paul met each other in heaven after Paul died, like what that was like, hey, Steve, Gosh, man, I'm so sorry. Like, I was, it was college. I just, you know, I don't know. I was zealous. All right, so that's Paul. That's Paul. So Paul says to the people in Corinth, he says, Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold, if you hold it fast. Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kepha, 
then to the twelve. Have another one? Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is saying, I'm preaching, I'm reminding you of the one thing I preached to you. He didn't preach about Jesus' parables. He didn't preach about Jesus' sayings. He preached Christ crucified and risen. That was the thing that Paul was saying over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Christos anesti in the Greek. Christ is risen. Jesus, I'm telling you, this is Jesus who was killed, is raised from the dead. That was his message. His message was resurrection. So here's the question. When did Paul come to Corinth? He's saying, I'm reminding you of what I preached to you when I was with you. When was Paul in Corinth? In other words, when was this conviction of the passion, death, and resurrection, when had that taken root in the Christian community? Back to what I was saying earlier. There are people who teach and believe that this claim to divinity of Jesus was a later invention, like 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century. Like People claim that the earliest Christians, they didn't believe that. Paul is saying, when I was with you in Corinth, I preached this. When was Paul in Corinth? Do we know this? Yes. We absolutely know this. We know this because of something recorded elsewhere in the scriptures in the book of Acts. Okay, so in the book of Acts, we get this. When, when, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which is a region uh, of Corinth, the Jews made an attack, a united attack upon Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Okay. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, he's describing, the book of Acts is describing a time, the time that Paul is in Corinth. Achaia is this, this, this region. And we know who Gallio was, and we know when Gallio was proconsul, because that particular governmental position, you only had it for one year. You only had that position for one year, and we know which year Gallio was proconsul because of archaeological evidence, inscriptions, coins of that nature, that he was proconsul in Achaia in the years 51 to 52, Anno Domine, A.D. In other words, Paul is preaching this message of resurrection in the year 51. The year 51, which is... 18 years, if my math is correct, 18 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 18 years ago, it was the year 2004. Anybody remember 2004? Like, yeah, right? Like, or you're like, oh gosh, no, that's just like so long ago, I don't remember anything from 2004. No. 18 years after the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Paul is in Corinth, in Achaia, preaching one thing. Jesus Christ was crucified, died, buried, rose from the dead. Like, and sometimes we don't even realize this about Paul. Like, nobody did what Paul did before Paul did it. Like, there were not missionaries of Zeus 
in the ancient world, going to other parts of the world to tell people, to tell people, I've got good news. Have you heard about Zeus? Like, lightning bolt, great beard, toga, you're going to love the guy. Like, there were not missionaries of Zeus in the ancient world. There weren't missionaries of Hera or Aphrodite. They, they didn't exist. Paul was the first to do this, to travel thousands upon thousands of kilometers over the course of so many years, suffering tremendously. He talks about being shipwrecked and passing several days and nights at sea. Like, could you imagine? Like, just let that sink in your head for just a few seconds. This guy was like, he found the message of the gospel, this message of Christ's resurrection, so compelling, so important that the world had to know it, that he was willing to do that. Stoned several times, not in the college way, but in like the ancient, awful, murderous way, right? Whipped, 39 lashes, I mean, imprisonment. His, you can, imagine what his body looked like at the end of his life. Because he had a message, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. This is not some late invention, invention of Christianity. This is 18 years after the crucifixion and death of the Lord. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. So resurrection is not a late invention of the early church, but let's just get honest here. But how in the world, like really, how in the world can this be believed? That this man was alive, he was put to death, and then he was alive again. Because that's the claim. Because I don't know if you know this, but dead people, they tend to stay dead. Like dead, dead, right? We all know this, and everyone in the ancient world knew this. Like this wasn't like a novel modern idea or modern invention or like, you know, I think dead people stay dead. I know that because of science now. We got science, and we know that dead people stay dead. All those dumb ancients, they probably didn't know that. No, no, they knew that, right? They knew that. We've all had the sad experience of, of like, having someone we know and love die and burying them. Like, if you had told me in, like, April of 2020, hey, I saw your grandpa. My grandpa? Like, the one who died in January and who, like, we buried? Yeah, no, yeah, I saw him. He's alive. Like, I would have punched you. Like, I don't know what I would have done. But like, like no, I, I gave him last rites. I saw him die. I heard his last breath. I watched him go into the ground. What do you mean you saw him? Dead people stay dead. I wept over him. Again, this is not something that we intelligent moderns have finally figured out. Like, the ancients were constantly surrounded by death in a way that we, we, are, we can't even fathom. Like, we don't even deal with death on the daily basis, but they did. Like, they heard the sound of death. They smelled the stench of death. Like, they, I mean, maybe people in Wadsworth more than in other parts of the, you know, the, the city, but like, we kill, they, you had to kill your food and butcher your food. You saw death on the daily. Death was in your home. It was around you all the time. It was all the time, and people were not stupid they, didn't, they weren't gullible. And yet, the apostles, like Paul, over and over and over again, they claimed that this happened, that this historical event took place, that this dead man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was buried in 100 pounds of aloes and spices, laid in a tomb, sealed, left the tomb, 
three days later, in a way that was like unbound by death. Like when it comes to the apostles' claim that this happened, that this dead man didn't stay dead, here's the question. How can we verify that? How can we verify that? Like when it comes to historical events, what, is the, what are the means by which we can verify that things happened historically? How do we know that things happen? What is it? Eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. This is the key question. The key question concerning eyewitnesses is their credibility. Like, why should we trust them? Why should we trust them? That's the question. When it comes to the apostles, the ones who claim they saw the risen Jesus, like the, the, the apostles admit to us in writing that at first they didn't think that Jesus, they, they admit that they at first thought that Jesus was a ghost. They admit in writing the incredulity. They admit that they weren't fast to believe, right? Like this whole scene, right? Like it's called the incredulity of, of St. Thomas. Thomas gets such a bad rap, right? Like doubting Thomas. Oh, you're such a dummy, Thomas, right? Like, no, if, if it was you or me, like, I, we would be first in line to be like, I don't think he's back, man, because dead people stay dead, right? Thomas, here, he's the one who's, yeah. He's the one who, like, he says, unless I see the nail mark in his hands, unless I put my finger in his side, I'm not going to believe. Why? Because dead people stay dead. But he's not a ghost. He eats. He has flesh. He has hands. Like, all of these things. He appears, he disappears. He says, take your finger, put it in the nail mark. Like, they knew that dead people don't come back to life, but they kept saying it happened. Like, that's an amazing thing. They knew that dead people don't come back to life, but they kept saying it happened. So what reasons do we have for believing them? What reasons do we have for believing the incredible, unimaginable thing happened? Here's the question. Back to eyewitnesses. What happened to these eyewitnesses? They died horribly. Horribly. Let's review, shall we? St. James the Greater, how did he die? Oh, he was stabbed with a sword. St. James the Lesser, stoned to death. Jude Thaddeus, filled with arrows. Philip, crucified by soldiers. Thomas, thrust with a spear. St. <laughs> Paul, he was beheaded, that's pretty nice. Peter, crucified, upside down. Shall we keep going? St. John, he died a natural death. That's really nice for John. Matthew, stabbed with a sword. Judas Iscariot, not good. Simon, he was crucified. Bartholomew, this is the one that gets me. Filleted alive and then beheaded. Hoy. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. Matthias, crucified in Judea. Okay. These guys, these guys, like, they died horribly. Like, if you're there with your hands, if you're St. Andrew, laying down on this X-shaped cross, right, and you know that you hid the body of Jesus, you took it out of the tomb, you hid it, and you made up the whole thing. If you're St. Andrew and you know that it's all a lie, you made it all up, you fabricated it, and you're lying there, the gig is up, there's a nail on your hand, you're going to suddenly remember a thing or two. Like, oh, I, I remember where we put the body. Guys, let me tell you where it is, right? Like, you're going to remember and you're going to say something, right? 
You're going to have an epiphany. Like, I just remembered. I don't want to die like this. Let me tell you, it's all made up. But they didn't do that. Not one of them. Like, nobody dies, nobody dies for what they know is a lie. Yes, there's many examples in history. Think of the 9-11 hijackers. People die for things that they are, they are convinced of, that they think are true. These guys not only don't denounce their faith, like they die praying for, not cursing their persecutors. They die in a way that like, like is so beautiful. I don't know a better way to put it. Like to, For the people that are feeding them to lions and lighting them on fire, they die singing hymns. They die praying for their persecutors. Like this, by the way, I don't know if you know this, this is what a, a Roman candle was. You know, 4th of July, you go to the fireworks store, buy some Roman candles. This was the original Roman candle. Where they would take Christians, mount them on a pole, douse them in tar or pitch or oil or something, and light them on fire to illuminate the city streets at night. Nero, psychopath, would have his garden at night surrounded by Christians burning alive to illuminate his garden dinner parties. The witness of their love, the witness of their generosity, their mercy, it won over an empire. Like, if if these people aren't credible, I don't know who is. Like, that's the point. If their testimony is not credible, I I would argue there's no one in history who is a more credible witness to anything than the apostles who said they saw, they ate with, they talked with, they were sent out by Jesus after his death and burial, that he was risen. Like, look, that's not a mathematical proof of this stuff. Like, there is no mathematical proof. There's no formula, there's no postulate that I could give you that says... A to B, B to C, and therefore D. This is, this is the kind of proof that um, that St. John, uh, Cardinal, Cardinal John Henry Newman talks about. That it's not so much a singular thing that proves a conclusion, but it's the convergence of many things that all tend in the same direction. It's the accumulated effect of all these things that all tend in the same direction. Like, you have to reckon with historical events. There's historical data that you have to reckon with, and all of it points to something monumental happening in that tomb, that something, something that wasn't supposed to happen happened, is the idea. I want to end here by reflecting, by sharing a reflection from an Anglican scripture scholar who I find remarkable. His name is N.T. Wright. He's taught me more about St. Paul than, oh gosh, than just about anybody. But he wrote this massive book on the resurrection. Uh, as he says, it's a great doorstop. Um, but it's, it's great. This is what he says. What can we know and what can we say about what happened? And how can we know about it? I begin with what I regard as fixed historical points. The only way we can explain the phenomenon we have been observing is by hypothesizing two things. First, Jesus' tomb was really empty on Easter morning. Second, 
that the disciples really did encounter him in a way which convinced them that he's not simply a ghost or a hallucination. Some additional elaborations on these two points is in order. Hypothetically, let's suppose that the disciples had seen or thought they had seen someone they took to be Jesus. This would not by itself have generated the stories we now have. Everyone in the ancient world took it for granted that people have strange experiences of encountering dead people. They knew at least as much as we do about visions, ghosts, dreams, and the fact that when someone is grieving over a person who has just died, the person sometimes sees briefly the figure of that person. This is not a modern invention. Ancient literature is full of it. They had language of that sort of phenomenon, and it was not resurrection. They described these situations as a kind of angelic experience. If there had just been an empty tomb with no sightings of Jesus, that wouldn't have proven anything either. Grave robbery was common. With soldiers, guards, and political enemies, all sorts of explanations would have been possible. Some would have gone at once for those explanations. If not, the empty tomb had been, if not, the empty tomb had been accompanied with sightings of and meetings with Jesus himself. Some time ago, he says, when I was writing my book on the resurrection, my friend came to me unexpectedly and asked me what it was about. And I said, the resurrection. Straight away, he said, of course, I've always been taken with the view that the idea of resurrection was in the air at the time. And the disciples were so bothered by Jesus' cataclysmic defeat and death that they more or less reached for that category, for a way of coping with their grief. That, he says, is totally implausible as an historical account of something that happened in the first century. I love N.T. Wright. We know of several other movements where the leader was killed, the one upon whom everyone had pinned their hope, but at, at no point do we find such movements then suffering from the blessed 20th century disease called cognitive dissonance. He's showing his British side here. Where they make up stories about something glorious that has happened in order to come to terms with their grief. This just doesn't work as history. Likewise, the account offered by many that when the disciples went to the tomb, their minds were so filled with light that it didn't matter whether there was a body there or not. At that point, these people have simply stopped being first century historians and have become 20th century 20th century fantastists. Folk in the first century knew plenty of people's minds filled with light. They had language for that, but this had nothing to do with saying someone had been raised from the dead. People often lodge complaints here, saying that this kind of discussion seems overly concerned with facts, and so much of religious language is actually about metaphor and faith. Well, it's of course true that Religious language does necessarily use metaphor, and faith remains central. But the point of Judaism and Christianity is that they're focused on creation. They believe in a God who made the world of space and time and matter and who wants to reclaim it. Thus, what happens in the real world actually matters. If someone came off the street and accused the church treasurer of running off with the money, it wouldn't do to say, now, did you mean that in some metaphorical sense? We would want to know, did he do it or didn't he? An important part of learning to read the scripture is that when we find a parable, 
we treat it as a parable. And it's equally important to learn to read Scripture that when the writers intend to express something that actually happened, we don't read it as a parable. The truth of the crucifixion story would be totally undermined if it could be proved that Jesus died of pneumonia in Galilee, even though the crucifixion sets off all sorts of metaphorical resonances in the minds of people, ancient people and modern people. And the truth of the resurrection is like that too. If it didn't happen, it isn't true. The fact that the truth of Jesus' resurrection sets off its own resonances in the world of metaphors and symbols doesn't mean that it can be reduced to those resonances or symbols. We have to learn both of these skills, not only one, how to read parables as parables and how to read historical narrative as historical narrative. This is a much longer quote than I remember. You still with me? Okay, good, okay. But it's so good. It's better when you have a British accent. All of which brings us face to face with the ultimate question. The empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus are, I believe, solidly established as historical data. They are the only possible explanation for the Easter stories and for those mutations in the Jewish beliefs that grew up so quickly. He's referring there to how fast the Jews stopped going to worship on Saturdays and started worshiping on Sundays. How then do we explain this data? Historians often explain by means of inference to the best explanation. This is very important. If I'm an archaeologist and I find in an archaeological site two pillars of a certain type and design that they have distinct patterns and notice indication maybe an arch had previously joined the two pillars, if then I look into my textbooks and see that pillars like that normally had this kind of arch, and if I'm so fortunate to dig further and find an arch exactly like the one in the book, same measurements and all, then I say this game is over. This hypothesis works. These pillars really did support an arch. We infer to the best explanation. There really was this arch that sat upon those two pillars. Now this doesn't amount to actual proof of Jesus' resurrection. I contend that after having studied all the possible arches that scholars have proposed which might join the two pillars, the empty tomb and the sightings of Jesus, there is nothing that comes remotely close to explaining these phenomena except for the following proposal. Jesus of Nazareth really was raised from the dead on the third day, leaving an empty tomb behind him and being transferred to a new embodied state where he had gone through death and out the other side into a bodily life after his brief life after death. Of course, historical argument alone cannot force anyone to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but historical argument is remarkably good at clearing away the undergrowth behind which skepticisms of various sorts have been hiding. I know that was a long block quote, but so brilliant, and it's so important. It just points out the fact that the historical data of the sightings of Jesus with the empty tomb, the only plausible explanation is that it's true. That should shake us. Like, genuinely. Like, that should shake us. Here's how someone else put it. 
If Jesus of Nazareth hadn't risen from the dead, then nobody would know his name today. Nobody. Why would they? What would be the reason to remember an inspiring guy who got crucified? There wouldn't be a reason. So Jesus of Nazareth, who was he? He was God in the flesh. He was the one who reveals who God is. Does that matter? You better believe it. <laughs> you better believe it. Like the only son of God, the one through whom the universe that's trillions of light years across came into being, he truly suffered, he truly died, he was buried for us, he truly rose bodily from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he will come again to judge the living and the dead as we say and believe in the creed. And he did all of this for you. Not for y'all, but for you. Because for reasons that we can't fathom, you matter to him. You matter to him. And the absolutely critical thing that matters for you and I is, is quite simply, how are we going to respond? What's going to be our response? That's what the rest of this year is. Like These foundation points. We have to know the story. We have to know who he is. We have to be convinced that this is real. Now the question is, this is where we're going next, is if he is real, if he is alive, how, how do I have access to him? How do I encounter him? How can I know him? Because if he's, like, I can't get to know Abraham Lincoln because he's dead, right? And dead people stay dead. If that point hasn't been driven home tonight, I don't think it ever will. Like, I can't, I mean, yeah, I can read stuff about Abraham Lincoln, but I can't come to know him. But if Jesus isn't dead, well, how, how can I come to know him? That's where we're going next. The heart is the answer. That's the place where we come to know him. And prayer. That's where we're going next. Let's land this. Oh, beautiful. Again, eight minutes early. How about that, folks? Okay, let's see here. All right, let us pray, friends. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God Almighty, your Son Jesus, the Word made flesh, we profess our faith in him, in the incarnation that, God, you really became flesh and dwelt among us. It's astounding. But we believe it. And because we believe it, we base our lives on you, Jesus. We want to be disciples. We want to know you more, to love you more, to let you be the center of our life. Lord, we lift up to you anyone who is suffering or struggling. We pray for, pray for everyone who is sick. In this respect, life, month of October, we pray for all unexpected mothers especially those who find themselves in situations of crisis pregnancy, unexpected pregnancy, and those mothers who are contemplating abortion, that tonight, through the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe, Lord, that they would choose life for their babies. We lift up to you an individual named Angeles, I think, who has been in a coma for 13 months. Jesus, in your name, send healing upon 
this individual's body, into their brain, into their nervous system. In your name, Jesus, may everything be healed. We profess that you are alive and you are active. That the miracles that you did, you still do. Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this community. Continue to bring into our midst, Lord, more people who want to discover more about this faith, who are hungry for more. May we be good evangelists, good witnesses, and invite people in to come to know you, Jesus. We make this prayer in your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, guys. Does anyone have any questions or comments for Father? Yeah, great. Good. Observations. Well, let's give Father a round of applause. Thank you.